verses. It's a very familiar story. We're going to read just the first part of it, really, that introduces the uh, whole introduces the whole chapter, uh, which uh, talks of Jesus as the resurrection and the life. But starting this introductory section, John eleven one to sixteen. Hear then the word of God. Now there was a certain man who was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with anointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And then after this, he said to his disciples, let's go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going there again? Jesus answered, and he said, are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light Of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant that he was taking rest in sleep. So Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. And so Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go, that we may die with him. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, for your great love for us, that you have given us your word, and you have poured out your spirit, and you meet us day by day and speak to us. Through your word and your spirit, we long, Father, to be a people who are shaped and formed by this speaking, by this work of your spirit to bring your word to life in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls, for the shaping and the forming of your people in your own image. We come to you this morning, we bow our knees, speak to our hearts that we might find strength and comfort. We ask and we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. You know, sometimes I wonder what God is doing. It is, it, is, it is hard to see the works of providence and what God is doing, whether it's in my own life, sometimes in the life of the church or in the life of the larger world around us. It's hard to figure out what God is doing. Things don't always go as we planned. And life can get hard and life is full of twists and it's full of turns and things that we would say, I wouldn't have done it that way. It's not the way I planned it or thought about it. There are twists and turns and disappointments. And there are times when the work, God's work in our life seems harsh, difficult. And sometimes it's not hard to get to the place where we doubt God's motives. We question His intentions. What He's up to. Why He's doing what He's doing. Do we not ask that question with some regularity? Why? Why? Why are you doing this? 
It's easy to live under the sense maybe that God is out to get us or that He's waiting for us to blow it or He gets some delight or satisfaction from our difficulty or our struggles. At times, all of us might attribute some very strange and offering unflattering motives to God and to that difficult-to-understand work of His. Because His providence may deal a difficult blow, and we will pray. Right? You will pray, and you will ask God to do something. You will ask God to change something, to intervene in some way in your life, in your circumstance, or in someone who you love. And so when, when life deals us one of those blows, and we come to Him and we ask, and there seems to be no answer. The truth is we can struggle to trust Him. To believe that He is unfalteringly for us. That He's on our side. That He is for us like a father who loves his children. This morning we get a glimpse in this story, we get a glimpse into the heart of Jesus. In some of the worst circumstances that life could throw at us. The the death of a loved one. The the illness and the death of someone we love. And, And in the midst of this, Jesus shows us his own heart. We have this story of a trio of siblings. right? Two sisters and a brother who live together in the town of Bethany. In fact, it's in some ways their town as it's referred to. Lazarus, Martha, Mary, all of them are believers. They know Jesus, they believe in Jesus, they're his followers. Jesus has stayed in their house. We know Mary and Martha, that that whole story. This is that Mary and Martha, the Martha who is busy and worried about many things. Jesus loves this family, he knows them. We're told in verse 1 that a certain man, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and Martha, is ill. He's sick. He's gravely ill. It's not a minor illness. It is, it is a fatal affliction that is taking a hold of him. Whether they know it or not, they know it's serious. Their brother is sick. And so, in verse 2, we're told it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, the one whom you love is ill. Right now, what in verse 2, where it tells us that Mary, who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet, it's interesting as I was reading this and saying, I don't remember having preached that yet, so I'm looking back. When did this happen? It actually happens in the next chapter. It happens in chapter 12, where that story is related of uh, Mary uh, doing that. And it's interesting, this, this book, the whole book is written after both of the events has happened. So even though, even though that event in verse 2, Mary wiping his feet with her hair and weeping over them happens in chapter 12. He, he identifies her as the woman who will be in that story as something that are both happened in the past. So he's playing on their knowledge of some of these things. There's a certain assumption of uh, who these folks are in, in the minds of the readers. But in verse 3, we're told that the sisters sent to Jesus saying, Lord, the one whom you love is ill. They ask for his help. Right? They pray. They pray to Jesus. They cry out to Jesus. They, they call out to Him. They send word to Him. They prayed and they waited. You know, these are the kind of prayers that we might send up in the, in, that arise out of our own trial, our own pain, the own, our own twists and turns in the path of life. And so you never know one day when you wake up whether a bomb is going to explode 
either in Boston or in our own lives in some way. Every day brings its own trials. And in the course of them, just like in these sisters' lives, where they, they, one day their brother falls ill and their heart cries out to Jesus. It's the right place for their heart to go. It's the right place to ask and to look for help. They lift their hearts, they cry out, and they probably then watched every day down the road leading to Bethany for Jesus. They waited for him to come. They know Jesus. They're friends of Jesus. They spend time with Jesus. And they, they know that Jesus loves them. They spend this time probably waiting expectantly for Jesus to answer their summons. It's very probable that Jesus was about a day away on the other side of the Jordan. And, and it would be about a day's travel. At least the folks that I read, the assumption was that Jesus was probably about a day away from these guys. If they sent a messenger, the messenger would have returned on day two alone. It took him about a day to get there and a day to get back. And when he shows up, he's alone. And then you got a couple of more days of watching down the road. Is Jesus right behind them? And he waits, and they wait for Jesus to come. And he, where is he? How often is that the question that we ask when we're in the middle of something? Something is going on in our hearts and our lives, and often don't our hearts go there? This Jesus I know, this Jesus, where is he? And in answering this question, it's not hard, especially in our pain, to misjudge him, to misjudge this Jesus. And why he is not seemingly here. Right, in verse 4, he, he says that this illness does not lead to death. Right, we're told that when he heard this, he says this statement. Uh, and as I read this, it's not clear to me, I don't know if it is to you, that whether the messenger was still there, if Jesus says this in the hearing of his disciples to the messenger, or just after the messenger has left, he says it to his disciples. But if he made this statement, this illness does not lead to death. And this is the message that goes back to Mary and Martha who stand waiting for Jesus for days while their brother dies. It's very confusing. I'm not sure if Jesus sends the message or not, but either way, it's, there's a level of confusion that plays out in this story and what is going on. There's this, in their pain, when Lazarus dies and the question arises, where were you? Later in this chapter, we're going to see Martha meet Jesus on the road, verses 20 and 21, which we didn't read to, but it says, So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, and Mary remained seated in her house. She doesn't get up. She doesn't go out. You wonder, is she angry? You know, at Jesus, Jesus finally shows up, and she doesn't bother to get up. She's grief-stricken, angry. She stays at home. Martha comes out and says to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, again, it is hard to hear the emotion and to know what's going on in somebody's heart. But when I read that, I hear the tone of accusation. If you had been here. If you had been here. Mary doesn't even come. She comes out to say, Lord, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. This is four days later. If you had come when we called. Can you imagine saying that to Jesus? If you had come when we called, this wouldn't have happened. 
But the truth is, our hearts say that all the time, doesn't it? Don't, we, don't our hearts, somewhere in there as we pray those prayers and, and we're not getting the answers that we want or it takes longer or we have to live with something and either something is chronic or something just doesn't go the way that we want it to go. When we live in this place, pain does funny things to the heart and to the mind. And when we live in this place, there is often this thing, if Jesus had only, would only answer my prayer, if Jesus would only do what I ask Him to do, Lord, why? If only, if only Jesus would do what we want and what we think is best, this wouldn't happen. Why doesn't he answer? Why doesn't he come when he's called? Why doesn't he show up in time? Why do so many of our prayers end that way? The disciples who are with him are are confused, clearly, in a number of different ways. They're not sure what's going on. They don't know whether Lazarus is alive or dead. They don't know why Jesus has stayed. They think he's sleeping when Jesus says he's falling. They're just going on what Jesus is omniscience. When Jesus tells them something, they think they know what's going on, but they end up confused through the whole story. And they're probably confused in the whole thing of why he's not heading out. A messenger has come. You know, they're thinking, if I'm the one sick in a nearby town, and I sent word that I was sick, why isn't Jesus coming? <laughs> why, are, why are we spending these days doing what we're doing here? They think he's afraid. When if Jesus finally says, it's time to go, my friends, we're going to head over to, uh, let's go to Judea again, down in verse 7. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews who were just now seeking to stone you, are you thinking to go there again? So they, in their minds, they think Jesus hasn't answered this summon because he's afraid of the Jews. He's afraid. They've already tried to kill him. He's afraid that if he goes, he would be captured and killed. Right? So they think Jesus' motive for staying is fear. Fear of the Jews who want to get their hands on him. You know, what is Jesus up to? You know, when it's so easy to mistake the Lord's motives, right? And trying to understand Jesus, to understand God and what he is doing, it is so hard to fathom their motives, to figure them out. It's easy to make mistakes. What is Jesus up to? It's a very complicated business when his thoughts are so much higher than our thoughts. Right? When His ways are so much higher than our ways. And sometimes when His goals and purposes are not known to us and what He is about. You know, it felt like, it might have looked like to these sisters, it, this unresponsiveness on the part of Jesus. To the disciples, it looks like fear. To the girls, it seems like it might seem like callousness. If you had only been here. But actually, what we are looking at are the careful calculations of wisdom and love. The very careful calculations of wisdom and love. Because love is Jesus' motives and is dealing with us. The scripture is so clear all throughout. But in this story, they, they make a strong, deliberate effort to make sure that we see it. Right, John, who is the immediate author, and God, who is the ultimate author, wants us to know that Jesus loves Lazarus. Right? It comes so clearly as the, the message comes to them in verse 3. The sister sent to him and said, Lord, he whom you love is ill. They don't even name his name. So when this messenger comes from Bethany, he whom you love, as if there is a special relationship between Jesus and Lazarus, 
there is some unique thing going on here that he especially loves Lazarus. And, and so word comes just simply, this one, the one you love, is ill. And I believe then that we need to understand that whatever Jesus is up to, whatever his purposes he has, Jesus loves Lazarus. He loves this family. He loves these sisters, right? That's in verse 5 we're told. Now, because this story is a little confusing, you might get the wrong idea. You, you might be tempted to misjudge the Lord's motives in all of this. So in verse 5, it's interjected by John, by God, the author. Now Jesus loved Mary and her sister Mar- Martha uh, and her sister Mary and Lazarus. Right? And, she, and he names each one of them by name. Jesus loves Martha. Right? Jesus loves Lazarus, the one whom you love, I think that could be said of every single one of us, right? When we're thinking about Jesus and his dealings with us in these circumstances, the one whom you love is in this circumstance. It's always the context when we cry out to him as his children. The one whom he loves is going through this. And so God is saying, I think in verse 5, when he he says, now, Jesus loved these folks. That God is saying, understand, folk, that even though Jesus' ways here are inscrutable, you know, I like that word, inscrutable, they're they're beyond finding out, they're hard to understand, you can't see into them, you can't quite get a grasp of them. Even though Jesus' motives appear to be, his, his actions here, his choices and his actions are inscrutable, I want you to understand in all of this, he loves these guys. When people are desperate and are in pain, we might try to bargain with God to convince him to help us. You know, you ever see when they reach out to Jesus here and to say this, if they had the opportunity, you know what, where do our hearts go? We're trying to get Jesus to do what we think he should do, what we want him to do. And so we may start to bargain with him, to convince him to help us, right? And so, I don't know, you fill in the blank in the ways that you try to convince God to answer your prayer. You know, whatever formulas and, and, and things that we can get into, We don't need any other motive to compel Jesus to answer our prayers than his own love for us. That is the given in this story. That's the given in our story, is his love for us, is the motive which actuates Jesus in his choices and his actions. It's interesting in 5 and 6, the way the ESV does it, and so do the other translations. It says, you know, in 5, it says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Verse 6, So, thus it was. You know, it's a connecting word. Jesus loves this family. So, interestingly, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. You see the incongruity? Again, the inscrutable understanding of that. Jesus loved them. So he delayed in going to Lazarus' side. So he delayed coming to these sisters in their fear, in their pain, in their grief. So he stayed because he loved them. No, why, Jesus? Why didn't you go? He loved them, so he stayed. 
Jesus, what are you doing? Why aren't you going? He loved this family. So he chose to stay, to delay his coming. Did he let Lazarus die? There's a lot of speculation as I read to different commentators and folks who think about it. Does he actually, in his delay, let Lazarus die? And there's, there's disagreement about it. I don't know. Lazarus, when Jesus got the message, Lazarus may already have passed away. If Jesus was about a day away, and it took a day for the messenger to get to him, and Jesus came on the fool, when Jesus shows up at the village, he waits, right? The messenger takes a day. Jesus waits two days, and then it takes Jesus a day. That's four days to, for Jesus to come. When Jesus gets there, the sisters tell him he's been in the tomb for four days. The timing is pretty tight. Jesus may, may know that going wouldn't, uh, other than resurrection, wouldn't have changed the outcome, that Lazarus had already passed away. It's quite possible. Either way, Jesus tells the disciples in verse 15, I'm glad I wasn't there for your sake. Another interesting statement in the inscrutable Jesus. I'm glad I wasn't there for your sake. In other words, often what is going on in the life of Lazarus, who's passing away, in the lives of Mary and Martha, who have to go through this illness and death, which is, they don't know he's going to be raised, as you and I know in the outcome of this. They go through this. The disciples who are confused and trying to understand what Jesus is doing. And in all of this, right, God is at work in the lives of all these people. In other words, what God is doing in Lazarus' life affects a lot of people. In other words, his purposes are bigger than, than, than us. Right? And so what is happening in Lazarus' life, he tells his disciples, I'm glad I wasn't there for your sake because this is about you too. This is about your faith. This is about what what God is doing in your life. This is about what I want you to understand. The disciples who who have nothing to do in in an immediate sense. right? It was not unlike that with Joseph. I put in your bulletin under the second, third point there. Genesis 50 verse 20 where Joseph says to his brothers, you know, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people would be kept alive? I mean, you think about the suffering that Joseph endured, the betrayal of his brothers, the thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, accused and betrayed and, and, and misjudged and imprisoned and forgotten, and the years and the level and the depth of suffering that Joseph... And God says, Joseph has the God-given insight at this point to say, God meant it for good. Because at every step along the way, would Joseph say, why? Why am I being sold? You know, why am I being in, enslaved? You know, why? Why, God? Why, God? Why, God? You know, but at some point he gets this in. He says, God meant it for good. And I believe he meant it for good for Joseph. And what God was doing in Joseph's life. But we always remember, he says, for, it was for your sake. I'm glad I wasn't there. And God does that quite often for your sake, even for our sake, for the deliverance of his people Israel on a larger scale. Joseph's suffering was woven into the larger purposes of God that affect very many people and nation. And very often what goes on in our lives, we, we think it's all about us, but we see this, this picture. God loved Joseph. 
despite all those things. God loves, Jesus loved Lazarus. He loves the sisters. God loves you. This is what is behind all of his works. So McLaren there in your bulletin, he says, nothing but the purest and the simplest love, transparent and without a fold in it, sways him in all that he does. It is love that motivates our Savior. Not sometimes, but all the time. Even when there are the confusing acts of providence that go on around us. I think of that great hymn, The Lord Works in Mysterious Ways. Sounds is a good illustration for a lot of sermons, but that line within it that says, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, as the sisters may have been tempted to do, to judge the Lord by feeble sense that He didn't come when He called, but to trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. Right, even in his discipline, even the course of all this, it is love that motivates. Hebrews chapter 12, it's there in your bulletin. Even in his discipline, the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. He chastises everyone whom he receives. We have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of our spirits and live They were disciplined for a short time and it seemed best. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. He for our good. He does what he does for our good. It's because he loves his family that he delays and does what he does. There is a work that we may not understand as he shapes and forms us in his own image as the people of God and teaches us faith, teaches us trust, teaches what it, what it means to walk with him. Infinite wisdom, infinite power, and untainted love govern all of his works. Let me just give you a few applications to this as we come out of it. First thing is this reminds us is that no one is exempted from the suffering in this world. You know, Lazarus, the one whom you love is ill and dying. Right? It reminds us that, that in this world we will have trouble. You know, take heart. He's overcome the world, but he promises us, you know, we will have trouble. We are not exempted. Despite the health and the prosperity teaching that is out there, the most beloved of his saints will suffer hardship and discipline in this world. And it's because he loves us. God answers in his own way. Well, I'm going to say trust in God's timing, his timing Jesus delays because he loves them. He waits out of love. In some ways, it may be hard to then come back and discern what exactly it is God is doing in their lives to understand that. But those four days would have seemed like an eternity to these sisters. But the timing in God's mind, in Jesus' mind, was perfect. I put there, I don't know what you do with uh, my references to Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings and, and, and Gandalf as he shows up in the village and he's accused by one of the hobbits of being late. Gandalf, you're late. And his answer to them is, wizard is never late. Right? A wizard is never late. He's never, nor is he ever early. He shows up precisely when he means to. Right? And I think this, I think this Tolkien is, is a window into our God. Jesus is never late. He's never late, nor is he early. He shows up precisely when he means to. I mean, isn't that part of the message of this story? 
he shows up precisely when he means to. And his delay was purposeful. And it was loving. And it was gracious. And then he answers in surprising ways. He reminds us that all of us will go through such things and that his timing is perfect, but also his answers are often surprising and inscrutable. This is not what they expected. When Jesus finally does show up and the way things go down, no one understood what Jesus was doing. Nobody understands the way Jesus answered this prayer, but Jesus comes and he does answer the prayer and he does love these women and he does love this family. We also see in the story that God's motive is the highest. The highest movement of Jesus' decisions in God's work. In verse 4, when Jesus heard it, it was said this illness, uh, heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. Right? We exist for His glory. And Jesus looks on this circumstance and he says, you know what's governing all of this? (laughs) Is the glory of God, particularly the glory of God in Jesus Christ. That is what governs all these things that happen. And and because that's true, as we face things, our deepest desire in whatever we face, and whatever deep struggles we may have, would be that God would be glorified within it. This is what Paul, as he writes in Philippians chapter 1, it's there in the last point, your bulletin, Paul is himself in prison, He's awaiting trial. He's expecting to be executed. He wrestles with the prospect of his own death. And what's his concern? Not once in Philippians do you hear him say, Why, God? Why are you doing this? He says, God is at work. It's for the the advancement of the gospel and the kingdom. And his cry is this. My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed, but that I will have full courage now as always, that Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. You see the sold-outness of Paul? Whatever God is doing, and he doesn't claim to understand it, he doesn't claim to fully know, he knows that God is at work, God is doing his thing, and he trusts him with this absolute sense. His concern is not whether he lives or dies. His concern is that whether he lives or dies, he honors God, that he's God's man in it. That he sees him and he brings him honor and glory in it. Because he trusts his love and his purposes for him. You know, we will groan and we will struggle. And we will cry out in our pain and in our distress. But I would encourage us, my friends, never to doubt his love. Never to doubt that it is his love that motivates him. Let me close with this just last little anecdote of Jonathan and Sarah Edwards, who had an extraordinary marriage. And Jonathan Edwards, at the age of 54, he was appointed to be the president of the seminary in in Princeton. It was then the uh, seminary of New Jersey. And and he is appointed to be president. And and along the way, he takes an inoculation that is still uh, semi in in its early stages, a smallpox inoculation. And at the age of 54, with a dozen children... Uh, and a loving wife, that inoculation kills him. Jonathan Edwards was one of the greats. I, generations looking back, and you know, all the wise, but his family, all these children, this wife, at a very young age, 54. Can you imagine, those of us who believe in God's providence, why? Can you see his wife looking, this man who's the president of a seminary, one of the greatest minds of our millennium. 
She writes this to her daughter. My very dear child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me to adore his goodness. That we had your father for so long. But my God lives and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God, and there I am, and there I love to be. Have you abandoned yourself to the love and the providence of God in your life? Is that where you are? Is that where you love to be? Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your great an everlasting love. Oh, you have loved us with an unfailing love. Nothing can separate us from the love that you have for us in Christ. Father, let us indeed know that that is where we love to be. In the knowledge, that knowledge and in that comfort, in that strength, no matter what we face, no matter what we go through, no, no matter how inscrutable your ways and how dark the providence May we understand ourselves to be in your infinite, wise, gracious, loving, and good hands. And whether we live or whether we die, may our passion be that you would be honored and glorified in us. For it is in your name that we pray. Amen.